0: And we are in Genesis chapter 6. So if you could open to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be doing the whole book of Genesis or the whole chapter of Genesis 6. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. He did all that God commanded him. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, we want to hear your word clearly. We want you to speak. We want no distractions. We want it to be your word front and center. So help us. We need the help of your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit work. We collectively ask for the help of your Spirit. It is our our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, kids, it's good to see you again. Today's story is about Noah and the ark. But it might not be the story most of you are familiar with. This isn't some happy story about a floating zoo. In fact, and I hate to break this to you, it's actually not really about the animals. Instead, it involves demons doing terrible things. It involves powerful people who use their powers to act in bad ways. And it involves all of mankind defiant against God. Maybe you prefer the floating zoo. But we need to hear the true story of Noah and his ark. Because we still live in a world that's demonic. We still live in a world where those in power use their power to do bad things. And we still live in a world that as a whole is defiant against God And we need to know how to live in such a world. So let's learn the true story of Noah and the ark. The story begins in a very dark place. It begins with creatures that are called sons of God falling in love with daughters of man. Have you ever heard that song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Sometimes we see something we want, and so we think, I must have that. It happened with Eve. That fruit was so attractive to her, so she went and she took it. She was an earthly being trying to become like God. The same thing here happens with the sons of God. Human women were attracted to them, so they went and took them. They were heavenly beings trying to enjoy the stuff of earth. But who were these sons of God? It's kind of an odd phrase. We see them in Job chapter 1 and 2. And Job 1 and 2 describes a council of high-ranking angelic beings who would gather before God. We know from 1 Peter 3 that powerful angelic beings rebelled against God in the days of Noah. So it seems that the sons of God are powerful angelic beings that, like Eve, followed their eyes to their destruction and so become powerful demons. They wanted human females. So they took human females. Verse 2 says, they took as their wives any they chose. That's bad, bad news. I think it ranks as one of the worst Me Too moments in the history of the world. Dominant males invested with spiritual power having their way with women. And then according to verse 4, it, it produces a, gener, a generation of physical and cultural leaders. The men of renown. Giants. Nephilim. That, that could dominate. But if you get the sense as you read this that the, that the humans were these unwilling victims of demonic activity, we have it wrong. The, the seedy corruption was Pervasive. Look at what verse 5 says. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's so bad that then in verse 6, Yahweh regretted that he has made man on the earth and it grieves him to his heart. Now I need to pause here at verse 6 because some use a verse like this to deny other clear passages of the Bible that show God knows the future. They reason, how could God be grieved by something he knew was going to happen? Well, it isn't simple for finite humans to explain how an infinite deity functions. But the scriptures are very clear that God's sovereignty and foreknowledge in no way hinders his visceral and authentic response to mankind's behavior. How that all fits together might be hard for us, but let me just give a a hint as to how these could be resolved by, by giving two situations that are admittedly imperfect analogies. But first... Consider the person who designs a roller coaster and so knows it's every drop and tilt. Still, when that person rides the roller coaster, he experiences every thrill that the other riders would. Or, as another example, consider the mother who knows that her child has died. But that certain knowledge doesn't lessen the grief that hits her when she buries his casket. And neither analogy gets it exactly right, because our human experiences can't be equated to the experiences of the divine. But I hope they at least give you a sense of how even humans can know something or even be sovereign over it and still feel the experience of it. That's exactly what happens here. God isn't caught off guard by how dark things have become. He actually called it. He had warned Adam that if he ate of this fruit, this kind of destruction would come. But he still is deeply grieved to the point of regretting that he had made man upon the earth. That's how dark things have become. Now, not every society in the history of the world has been that godless and wicked. The level of moral degradation, it it ebbs and flows in any given culture. Sometimes there's a broad sense of the fear of God. Biblical values and morality are, are generally embraced but other times there's an open flaunting of God's standards, a defiant godlessness that pervades. Now that latter category can range from the swashbuckling tyranny to Vegas-style debauchery. It can be cavalier with no pretense of being good, or it can be cloaked in decency, that dupes itself into thinking it is noble while still rushing headlong into open rebellion against God's standards. Regardless, every man-made culture is in some way a recapitulation of the original state of godless rebellion described here in Noah's day. And our day Is no exception. It is dark, very dark. Perhaps the basic decency and tolerance we espouse function as kind of a sheep's costume, but the wolf is present. This, for example, a recent CBC column discussed a daughter who was dabbling in witchcraft, and the columnist concluded, and I quote, if being a witch is something that is in some way empowering to young women right now, then I say embrace being part of a coven, Or consider... How movies and shows that celebrate out of sex or out of merit, out of wedlock sex, teasing it, and allowing it to carry the storyline, well, those have become the norm. Or graphic celebrations of violence are likewise par for the course. The very violence and horror that would grieve God's heart are consumed while eating popcorn and sipping soda. And these degradations are so accepted that we're exposing them to teens or even preteens. Or in another vein, just listen to what's celebrated in our music. Sex, autonomy, selfishness. perhaps even worse pornography's unregulated a badge of what a free and tolerant society we've become and then you see political leaders flock to Toronto's gay pride parade that celebrates full on moral degradation that would that should cause anyone to blush all in the name of tolerance and on top of that we kill our most vulnerable Be they the frail and infirmed who are not sure if their life is worth living, or helpless pre-born infants. And it's not like these are just small pockets of society, kind of tentacles on the outside trying to creep in. No, this is broadly embraced and celebrated, so much so that there aren't even mainstream politicians that stand against most of these atrocities. And we haven't even listed the the many evils that are prevalent but which our society does condemn. Things like sexual abuse or corporate greed or oppression or racism. We may not have reached the depths of moral decay present in Noah's day. But we are drinking from the same fountain. And so, as I said at the beginning, we need to know how to live in such a world. So let's return then to the story and learn. As we saw from verse 6, God is deeply grieved. God is not impotent. So He acts. He does something. First, God limits how long humans can live. Did you notice that in verse 3? Remember back in Seth's genealogy, people lived 800, 900 years. But from this point on, the upper limit for humans is set at 120 years. As immorality mounts, God puts a limit on how long a man can live, and that limits how powerful that person can become, the kind of deadly influence they can have. And it shows just how strong God is. The offspring of demons are still fully under the jurisdiction of God. He can set a limit for their age, and it's set. But God does something else to show that these powerful spiritual forces are no match for him. Because this strange scene we see in Genesis 6 is strange because it's the only time it occurs in the history of the world. It's never again repeated in Scripture. Why is that? 1 Peter three nine tells us. It tells us that these spirits were imprisoned in the time of Noah. In other words, God punished these sons of God for acting the way they did. He restrained them from doing the same thing again. It is a time of great evil, but God is acting. God is powerful. He is not impotent. Now that doesn't mean we today will be inculcated from all this world's evils. Adam's rebellion demands that evil reign, that darkness hold sway. But it's not because God's over there missing punches and unable to to corral the forces of evil. To the contrary, God is strong. And even today, there are all sorts of ways He's limiting evil, sometimes in ways we can see, often in ways we cannot see. So yes, our world is a dark place and will be until Jesus returns. But even in this day, in this dark day, it would be far, far darker if God was not active. So friends, if we are to endure in this dark world, we must have our eyes firmly fixed on God. We must see that he is able to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And our story goes on. God is not done. Just by stopping these demons and capping a man's life at 120, it's not finished. God shows how mighty his hand is by pushing a sort of reset button on humanity. Or to put it differently, he gives the world a taste of what all of us deserve for our rebellion. Listen to his plan in verse 7. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then he tells Noah the specifics of his plan, beginning in verse 13. You can see it. He says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he goes on to tell him about how a truly cataclysmic event is going to happen. A worldwide flood that will destroy all flesh. Everything on land will die. Now this announcement would be mind-blowing. Because as best as we can tell from chapter 2, verse 6, the earth hasn't even known rain prior to this flood. And now God is saying, so much rain will fall that the entire earth will be covered in water before that water cycle regains its equilibrium. If you were living in Noah's day, you never would have dreamed something like this up. You couldn't have. It was an altogether different kind of reality. One day, God is going to return to our world and usher in a judgment on all those who've rejected Him. And that judgment will be just as surprising. In fact, when Jesus teaches on it in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, He says it'll be just like the days of Noah, just as unexpected, just as sudden. So God was going to destroy his rebellious creation. He would bear his arm and show his strength. But he would preserve one family. One family would be saved. The family of righteous Noah. The man who trusted in God, who looked to him. Yes, God will punish the ungodly, but He also rescues the righteous. And the rescue plan is stupendous. Noah is to build a massive ark. Now an ark is basically a a rudderless box that can float. But this rudderless box is enormous. Approximately the size of one and a half soccer fields, with three decks, had a roof on it that would keep out the rain but would allow a breeze and sunlight into the boat or the ark. The vessel would be able to hold a male and female of every species God had created. And it would hold Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, eight people in total. And Noah, by trusting in God, would pass through through these waters of judgment, and emerge alive on the other side. I don't know if you know this, but we actually act this out every time we have a baptism. Back there, there's water. Well, there's not right now. We only fill it up when there's a baptism. But when we baptize someone, they go down into the waters. And that represents going down into the death and judgment our sins deserve. But instead of being rescued from those waters by an ark, we're rescued by our union with Jesus. By putting our faith in Jesus, we're united with Him in His death and resurrection. His death was on our behalf. He bore the judgment we deserved. He endured the flood for us, so when we go down, we come back up. Now, if baptism was meant to be a picture of our life without Jesus, do you know what we do? We put the person down and hold them down until they drowned. But that's not what it's a picture of. It's a picture of life with Jesus. So we come up, raised to walk with Christ, the newness of life. We, like Noah, are rescued from God's judgment. So God's rescue plan with Noah involved an ark, an ark, and if you look at verse 18, an ark and a covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. Now, it's not entirely clear which covenant this is referring to. It could be pointing back to an implied covenant with Adam. Or it could be pointing forward to a rainbow covenant God would make with Noah. Or maybe that's the covenant there itself, just the ark itself. I I don't think it's particularly important what the covenant is. The point is it's part of how God rescues. Making promises, making a covenant is part of how God rescues. God's rescue plan involves an ark and a covenant. But it also involves a third component. A man. I actually think it's important to see. Now when we study the Bible, we're taught to see God as the hero. And that's right. We should be wary of, of reading the Old Testament as a bunch of moral examples. Be like Abraham. Be like Moses. Be like David. If you have sat here under the preaching at this church, you know that such a reading of the Old Testament is far from God's intent in writing the Old Testament. The New Testament shows us why God wrote the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament isn't to teach us how to be good people. It's to teach us that we need a Savior. And to point us towards the kind of Savior that's coming. God is the hero. God is the rescuer. God is the Savior. We're the ones in need of rescue. But, but, this is important. God works through people who look to Him in order to accomplish His rescue plan. Not, Not perfect people. Where there are no such people, but people of faith, people who trust him and so live distinctly from the world around them, people like Ruth and Boaz, people like Jonathan or Deborah, people like Noah. Look at how verse 9 describes him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And this is not saying that Noah was sinless. Rather, it's describing a man who refused to get caught up in the gross immorality of his day. Hebrews 11.7 makes clear that his righteousness was actually rooted in his faith and a product of his faith when it seemed like the world around him was going south fast, Noah kept his eyes on God and trusted him. Therefore, he didn't waver. In that sense, he was righteous. He was a a man of faith who trusted God. And our dark day and age needs Noah's. We need Ruth's and Deborah's. We need people of faith who are willing to be distinct, who are willing to stand apart from the sometimes subtle and often overt godlessness of our day. Kids, are you willing to be those kinds of people in your schools? Adults, are we willing to be those kinds of people? Are we willing to be part of God's new humanity with different values and different priorities? If so, we can take note of how Noah responded to God's outlandish rescue plan. He'd likely never seen rain, which would mean he'd never seen a flood. He was going to have to stop whatever was his line of work and give himself to building this massive floating box his barn. Now keep in mind, he already would have stood out like a sore thumb amidst the godlessness of his surrounding world. But, but this act would have definitely kind of pushed him over into the freak category. But what does Noah do? Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He obeys. He does what God says to do. Kids, remember at the start I said the story of Noah and the ark isn't about a floating zoo. It's not about aardbarks and orangutans. Rather, it's about the darkness lurking in the human heart. And it's about a God who's strong enough to rescue his own, but to judge the ungodly. And then it's also a call for us to live distinct lives in our age. To look to our God and obey him. I want you to imagine kind of a big battle plan. And this battle plan involves a little band of the soldiers going kind of close to the enemy, and the enemy thinks they can take them. So the enemy comes and surrounds this little band, and that band kind of draws out the enemy. Now, in that little battle right there, it looks like the enemy is winning. It looks like this little band of good soldiers is is being defeated. But if you're able to kind of span out and see the whole thing, as you see the enemy drawing out, you see the good forces surrounding and sweeping in. And you realize, though it looks like this battle is being lost, there's a much bigger plan that's being put into place and that the good side is actually winning. It doesn't feel like a defeat at all from that vantage point. That's how we're called to live now. Now knowing that God is doing something much bigger. His troops are on the move. And what seems like evil's great day is actually a small part of God's bigger victory plan. Listen to what 2 Peter 2 says about the story of Noah. For if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Where will you stand? Will you stand with the world in its ungodliness? Or will you put your faith in God, trust Him and obey Him, even if that makes you stand out? This morning God's given us the true story of Noah and the ark. And I think we need it amidst the dark world in which we live today. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this word. Pray that your spirit would use us to give us courage, faith, confidence in you, and a heart's desire to live for you like Noah did in his dark day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.